0: Hello, everyone. Warm greetings from Northwest Germany. Welcome to my show. My name is Dong Wang, and I'm the host. Today, it's my pleasure to have Dr. Grace Huang with us to speak about her new book entitled, Chiang Kai-shek's Politics of Shame Leadership, Legacy, and National Identity in China. Published by Harvard University Asia Center 2021. Grace, I wonder if you could say a few words about yourself. Sure, I'd love
1: to. Dong, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, compared to you, Dong, my background is a bit boring. I was born in Wisconsin. I moved around a bit before age five to Ohio and then Georgia. And then during my K through 12 years, I lived in Connecticut. My parents are immigrants from Taiwan, but I spent my whole life in the US. In terms of my schooling, I went to Brown University and then to the University of Chicago. And in both places, I majored in political science. My professors at the University of Chicago were important influences on my intellectual journey. Bill Sewell, who studies the French Revolution, was the professor who introduced me to ideas about structure and agency. Prasenjit Duwara introduced me to this fascinating period, the Republican era of China from a social historian's perspective. And the late Suzanne Rudolph taught me about Max Weber and political leadership. And the book she co-wrote with her husband, Lloyd Rudolph on Gandhi, called The Modernity of Tradition, was also a big influence on my thinking. And these professors also served on my dissertation committee. So in terms of how I became interested in writing this book on Chiang Kai-shek and his politics of shame, as a child, I felt that Chiang Kai-shek loomed large in my family history My father was a child when Chiang Kai-shek fled to Taiwan with around 200,000 mainlanders after losing the Chinese Civil War to Mao. Even though my father received an extraordinary education from the mainlanders who taught in his middle school, my father felt that he wouldn't have opportunity for advancement in a system that was dominated by the Kuomintang. It also didn't help that early on, the Kuomintang had imprisoned my grandmother briefly and caused my grandfather to flee the house temporarily. I always felt that Jiang Kai-shek was the reason for why my father left Taiwan and so profoundly influenced the direction of my family's trajectory. Regarding the politics of shame, that part is a little accidental. Even though my parents could speak and read Mandarin, I didn't gain those skills through osmosis, so it was difficult for me to read Jiang Kai-shek's archival materials, you know, despite language training, both at the University of Chicago and in Taiwan. So at the archives, I would sometimes look up every word in a sentence, and this method often resulted in very odd translations, as I would translate the meaning of a person's name or place in the actual sentence. So in this context, I was excited to encounter a phrase that was repeated often uh, in the materials that I was reading. These two words, or avenging humiliation, was something that Zhang put in his writing on a daily basis. So it was exciting to see a familiar phrase on the page. And then, of course, I became curious as to why this word kept showing up. And that's how I started a book about Chiang Kai-shek and his politics of shame. And so as a side note, in being reminded of my struggles to learn Mandarin, I just put it out there that it is extremely impressive when a scholar is fluent in two languages or more and can write and publish a book in a foreign language.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Grace. I do agree. It's very interesting that this book actually means a great deal to you professionally and personally. So, what are the main messages you intend to convey to readers in this book?
1: Yes, I think there may be two messages that I'd like to convey. The first one is that the kind of stories leaders embody and tell, it's an important alternative way of understanding a leader's impact. These stories that leaders tell can provide an important guide to the collective to know where they came from, how they should respond to the current moment, and what their path can be for the future. Shame was a prominent theme in the story Zhang constructed he had a personality that was deeply sensitive to shame. He felt the shame of becoming a quote-unquote orphan at the age of eight. He remembers deeply how his mother was treated after his father's death as being outside the family. And this sensitivity to shame really wasn't present in other leaders like Mao Zedong or Yuan Shikai. Thus during this period of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, when shame and humiliation were appropriate concepts to draw on when understanding China's predicament, Jiang could speak from a position of authenticity. In this way, he left a legacy in China that imprinted the Chinese national narrative with a sensitivity to national humiliation. This part of his leadership, I think, is important to acknowledge because of its impact on current day China. A second message I'd like to convey is that in the West, I think the uses of shame are overlooked as a cultural resource or tool in a leader's toolkit. The example of Chiang Kai-shek reveals that shame can be a potent method of building strength from weakness for leaders of weak states. And perhaps here I should clarify what I mean by shame because it doesn't necessarily have a positive connotation in the Western context, but it has a powerful and positive connotation in the Asian context. In Confucian philosophy, the feeling of shame actually motivates a practitioner to have the fortitude to avoid repeating the same mistake. And the experience of humiliation also produces this motivation to avenge that humiliation. And this use of shame gets overlooked because it's more of an internal dynamic that is at work. And as such, it's harder to see. If we circle back to the Rudolph's book that I mentioned earlier on, The Modernity of Tradition, the Rudolph's note that Gandhi showed a courage that involved restraint and control, whereas the Western notion of courage, for instance, is more outward manifesting. So this message that shame can be an important tool and it's something that we shouldn't overlook when we examine
0: leadership. Grace, given Chiang Kai-shek's prominence as the leader of nationalist China and later Taiwan from 1927 to his death in 1975, many people have written about him But you opened quite a different world of Jiang from a critical and multifaceted angle to review his inner thoughts and efforts to legitimize his leadership through political shame, sense of shame, and also humiliation. Could you tell the audience a bit more about the theories and approaches you used to execute the writing? Because I feel as a historian, when I was reading your book, the theories and the approaches you used are very accessible to me. I greatly admire your ability to employ abstract terms and concepts. Thank you, Dong. I really
1: appreciate hearing that because, you know, my training is in political science and yet I'm drawing from theories in sociology and hoping that historians like yourself, that it'll be accessible to different audiences. And so there was a sense is it Is it going to work? Because I am drawing from materials that are not necessarily from my own discipline. So let me see if I can explain some of these approaches and perhaps I can start with what I thought is a problem when we study leaders. If we're examining factors that go into why this one group wins in a battle, why were they victorious? I think it's hard for us to attribute the outcome solely to a leader's actual efforts. That sometimes it's hard to characterize what those efforts are, right? For instance, could it have been the weather that contributed or favorable terrain? Could it have been foot soldiers navigating on the ground? You know, exactly what is the effort of the leader contributing to this outcome? To me, it seems very difficult to answer. And so it was my interest to get at this aspect. How do we characterize a leader's creative efforts? And so it was important that I examine the structural context that a leader inhabits. Often we think of structures in terms of material resources and you know this makes sense that money, the number of guns, these sorts of resources can favor a leader's actions. But here I was more interested in ideological structures. So for instance imperialism was a much stronger ideology at the turn of the 20th century, but lost ground by the time we got to mid-century, World War II. By contrast, nationalism seemed to have an opposite trajectory. It was a weak ideology in China at the turn of the century, but then became stronger over time. So in China, we saw it spread to the urban class in the 20s and 30s, and then to the peasant classes in the 1940s. So given these ideological contexts over time, it was more difficult for a leader to call an action, a national humiliation in 1900 as compared to 1935 in China. So this was one approach I took when examining Zhang's uses of shame. In this regard, for instance, I compared Zhang's use of shame to that of Yuan Shikai and concluded it was much more difficult for Yuan to draw on shame as a cultural resource. A second approach I took was to study how Zhang mobilized shame to create a narrative his audience could buy into so that Zhang could pursue his political agenda and justify his decisions, right? So first I wanted to see the structure but then I wanted to see exactly what he did. So in the course of my study, I charted the ways Zhang adapted his national narrative using shame, especially when unfolding events would contradict the original direction of the narrative. So again here, I wasn't focusing on just Zhang's individual actions, but on the collective story he was creating. This is because I approach leadership as a leader-follower relationship, not just focusing on the leadership itself, the leader himself or herself. And I'm focusing on the story that gives the group its identity and direction.
0: Thank you. Grace, you've done a great deal of library and archive work. The backbone of your book I wonder if you can explain to readers and listeners more about the crucial historical sources, such as Mr. Zhang's draft manuscript, the published version of it, and his diary that you relied on. Sure, I'd love to do that.
1: Mr. Zhang's draft manuscripts or the Shi Manuscript is a remarkable document. Let me first describe to you what they are. It's a daily chronology of Zhang's life from 1927 to 1949. And it was compiled by three of his secretaries. And one could say that it was actually the secretaries as Zhang's agents who were creating this narrative about his leadership by uh, stitching together excerpts from Zhang's public speeches, from his telegrams, from his diaries, and also excerpts from occasional reports. Altogether, this series of chronologies, they comprise approximately 300 hand-sewn volumes. I get two common questions about these documents. First, there's a little bit of suspicion, right? Because can we really trust these documents as credible historical sources since they were compiled by his loyal secretaries? Here, I would say that the secretaries were following in the tradition of Chinese historiography where objectivity is highly valued, hence, the excerpts drawn by the secretaries were likely a true rendition of the actual speech, telegram, or diary entry. The area of concern is actually coming from two other areas. First, secretaries might omit materials they thought were unflattering to Jung, But since this was a draft manuscript, the omitting wasn't there in full force. You have to remember, that these documents were never meant for public consumption. And even if the secretaries were considering omission, you could see them crossing out the materials uh, in the schiller and you could still read what was under it. And the second area where uh, it's causing some problems with the document and it doesn't have to do with credibility is actually the ability of the secretary to craft a story. One secretary, I didn't like his work whatsoever. So it was Secretary Sun. He would, there was no analysis. He would just take a speech. He didn't even try to excerpt it. He would just write a three hour speech, and Shiluia volume would just have like three days because he was trying to write this whole speech. Or I don't know, he would skip a whole bunch of materials and then he'd squeeze it in the margin. So his work was terrible. Uh, there was another secretary who wrote very neatly, uh, and was very meticulous. And I had a sense that he, he had a more loyalist slant, but the content was still, you know, credible, just, he could have been more experimental. And so the secretary I loved the most, he was marvelous. And he was actually a doctor, uh, and wrote in that uh, handwriting of a doctor's, he really had a knack for focusing on what was important, providing context. And it, it didn't seem that he had an interest in slanting the materials one way or another. And so uh, it, he probably influenced wh- what sorts of events I studied because I really liked his work. So this is one area that people are worried about, the credibility. A second question or assumption about this chronology is that sometimes the question is, aren't the Shiluya manuscripts just a proxy for his diaries? And that somehow it would reveal the inner workings of Zhang. So remember, this is not just the diaries of Zhang. It's a compilation stitched together of public sorts of documents, telegrams, well, those were private, but they're given to other people, speeches, reports, as well as excerpts from the diary. And even so, even if we looked at the diaries themselves, I'm not even sure that we could really get at the inner workings of Zhang himself. These diaries, by the way, are housed at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. After all, Zhang probably had a sense that his diaries would be made public as part of his legacy. So instead, I have viewed the Shiluya manuscripts as a construction of a draft narrative, one that intriguingly shows the process of Zhang responding to the events of the day in the diary, implementing some of his reflections in speeches and telegrams, and then reflecting again later in the diary about how the day went. And in his communications, right, in his speeches and telegrams, he is trying to motivate party members, warlords, Chinese youth, children, that he has the right story for China. I want to emphasize that this draft nature of the document is very important because it gives us a process oriented understanding of how Chiang Kai-shek was constructing this narrative. And we can see this clearly when we contrast the Shiluia manuscripts with Qin Xiaoyi's 1978 publication of Zhang's Chronology. Qin Xiaoyi was a secretary of Chiang Kai-shek in Taiwan, and he used the Shiluia manuscripts to publish a a very abridged version of eight volumes. And when you read these volumes, you have a much more solidified narrative that is constructed from hindsight. And so many of the mistakes, first impressions, or deviations from the official narrative are omitted. So for instance, I spend a whole chapter talking about the Jinan incident because Zhang responded very strongly to it, and it had a significant impact on his leadership. Whereas from a historical perspective, this conflict between Japan and China was very small, right? especially compared to the Sino-Japanese War a decade later. And hence this Jinan incident doesn't get much mention in general history books about China. And finally, What has been exciting is that the archive in Taiwan, Academia Historica, decided to publish the Shiluya Manuscripts in its entirety. And it took 10 years to do so. So they completed this in 2013 or so. And the Shiluya Manuscripts now comprise 81 published volumes. But still, there's some differences in that. Qin Xiaoyi, when he was reading these manuscripts, he would put sticket notes on the actual volumes. And in the published version, in order to get the text, they would take out the sticket notes. So you don't have how he's reconciling what to leave in, what to leave out. So some information
0: is lost. Fascinating, Grace. I wonder how many people these days would do our own diary every day, like uh, what Chiang Kai-shek did uh, throughout his life. I'm also interested in your focus on Zhang's use of national shame, national humiliation. You mentioned the Jinan incident. It was marvelous for me to read about Zhang's uh, uh, Personal, private take on that humiliation and later the murder incident of the early 1930s. Often it feels like a self defense of Zhang's own dealings with the Japanese aggression in the 1930s and the 40s. So could you speak a little bit more about how Jiang constructed a collective national story for China from such a weak position?
1: Certainly. And I want to underline that last part you said, that China was in a very weak position. And so what do we mean by this, uh, China being in a weak position? position, uh, we right, we mean this vis-a-vis Japan. I had the privilege to interview veterans and army leaders of the Sino-Japanese War in Taiwan. And I wanna share uh, one observation from a foot soldier who noted that the Japanese had long range rifles, whereas the Chinese only had short range rifles. So there was really no way for the Chinese to attack the Japanese because their bullets would never even reach the Japanese. And uh, one uh, army leader in Shandong who actually turned into a Tai Chi master in Taiwan, he noted, we would try to escape the Japanese by walking from point A to point B, but the Japanese would then drive in their vehicles and be there waiting for us at point B. So there was a lot of technological advances that the Japanese had uh, and that the Chinese lacked. So given China's military inferiority vis-a-vis Japan, Zhang mobilized a familiar cultural story. Uh, It's the Gojen story to construct a national story for China and justify his self-defensive tactics, as you mentioned, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So who was this Gojian figure? He was the king of Yue in the fourth century BCE, who was defeated by the king of Wu. Uh, In order to avenge this humiliation, Gojian went through extraordinary lengths to endure humiliation in order to survive, strengthen his country, and ultimately free his country from the king of Wu. This included spending three years as a servant to the enemy king, and even tasting his feces to diagnose the king of Wu's health. This show of loyalty allowed Gojian to be released to his home country, whereby Gojian began secretly preparing his country for war. And indeed, to remind him of the humiliation at the hands of Wu and to continue enduring it until he felt his country was ready to fight, Gojian would daily taste gall and sleep on brushwood. This story uh, and permutations of this story is told very well by Paul Cohen in his book about Gojian. So thus, the Jinan incident in 1928 was a critical event in Zhang's construction of a national narrative, right? Even as I just mentioned, this skirmish with the Japanese was minor compared to later conflicts with the Japanese. So let me backtrack a little bit to give the context of what was happening in Jinan. Jiang was trying to unify China through the northern expedition. He was starting in the south and was moving north. During this fighting with other military leaders, other countries were worried about the safety of their nationals in China, including Japan. Hence, Japan had decided to send some troops to ostensibly protect its nationals in Jinan. Jinan is the provincial capital of Shandong Province, In this tense situation where there were Chinese and Japanese troops in close proximity, a little spark might start a fire uh, and that's what happened in Jinan. But Zhang made the decision to abandon Jinan and allow the Japanese to occupy the provincial capital for a year. And his rationale was that he, his troops and allied troops needed to endure this humiliation To achieve the greater goal of unifying China. His logic was that only through unification would they have the strength to combat the Japanese. To justify this decision, Zhang explicitly drew on Gojian when talking to troops uh, and to justify why they weren't fighting the Japanese. And he also drew on Gojian when reflecting in his diary, in particular at this time about you know a couple of days after the g9 incident he created the daily avenging humiliation entry right this is the entry that caught my eye uh, in the archives where he swore to write a method a day to help him help remind him of the g9 humiliation as well as focus on methods to avenge right it was his method of lying on brushwood and tasting gall and he would use these words Wuxin Chang Dan, to fellow soldiers to encourage himself. But of course, the narrative doesn't quite unfold the way that Zhang would like. Uh, Namely, China was unified only nominally in 1928. So when the next and much larger attack occurs in 1931, Zhang has to adapt his uses of humiliation yet again. But because of China's weakness, right, which you mentioned in your question, he he again stayed on the defensive, as you perceive, even though others were pushing for China to be on the offensive. But in this case, instead of giving in to those who want to protest and fight back, Zhang instead doubles down and refuses to militarily engage Japan indeed he was like the inverse of a of the Weberian notion of a charismatic hero right he doesn't seem extraordinary he's not showing these extraordinary powers and instead he is trying he's showing himself as enduring all of these criticisms about his leadership. Right, and then, and his decision making. And he would even step down at the end of 1931, as opposed to compromising. So, some have suggested that Zhang missed an opportunity to harness this outward pouring of nationalism and missed the opportunity to attract such people of talent. But here, you know, if we look into this story, he's conveying another version of nationalism. It's a more quiet version that has to do with this enduring of the humiliation because it's looking at survival, right? And, so, and it's also a more uh, unpopular one, but despite that uh, one that he thinks is, is the correct way. And so when push came to shove, when Zhang resigned, Others were also unenthusiastic about mounting an attack on Japan. And thus, Zhang was able to return to power a couple of months later. And so it seemed that even though it was so unpopular, this decision not to fight at all, right, and even as people aren't listening, he's saying, we need to endure this humiliation, I'm going to endure all of these criticisms, right, that in the end, his Decision was born out uh, and then he returned to power.
0: In part two of your book, you shifted to a different approach to further examine Jiang's leadership efforts in comparison with other important leaders of China and India, including Yuan Shikai, you mentioned, Mao Zedong, and Gandhi. Why, what did Jiang and Gandhi say about each other? What was the balance of Jiang's moral compass and his charisma?
1: Yes, Uh, as I mentioned earlier, when we were discussing approaches to this study, I was very interested in the specific leadership and political contexts that these leaders operated in. Some leaders will operate in more favorable contexts than others and thus have an easier time ensuring a favorable legacy. And so I expanded the study in the second part of the book to compare Jiang's uses of shame with Yuan Shikai and Mao Zedong. And I did allude earlier that Yuan Shikai had a harder time uh, using shame, and I thought it would was also useful to go outside of the Chinese context because I thought Gandhi and his uses of satyagraha, it was also an analogous notion of um, shame and enduring humiliation. So instead of you know looking at all of these leaders, maybe uh, it would be more productive to focus on one. Um, And so if we take Gandhi for instance, I argue that Gandhi had at least two structural factors that enabled him to draw on Satyagraha with better efficacy. Uh, uh, Just to backtrack a little bit. So Satyagraha is translated as truth struggle, and it emphasizes self-control, and nonviolence as opposed to lashing out. And we can see this similar logic where if the Indians had lashed out violently against the British, the result might have been violent repression, right? And difficulty garnering favorable international attention for the Indian cause to be free. So Gandhi had at least two structural factors compared to Chiang Kai-shek where it seemed that he was in a more favorable situation in using Satyagraha. So the first was that by the time Gandhi was known on the national stage, so this was right around, right after World War One, the Indians had a functioning bureaucracy that had centralized the state. And because the Hindus and Muslims were both being oppressed by the British, there was also this sense of nationalism. So when Gandhi spoke of Satyagraha or when he called for boycotts of British goods, he wasn't being challenged in the way that Zhang was by rival military leaders or party leaders that had a very different direction in mind as where China should go. So this was one factor that he was already operating in a system that wasn't so divided. The second uh, factor was that Gandhi was outside of power. And so, you know, to your question about Zhang's moral compass, Gandhi, because he was outside of power, it was much easier to show that he had a moral compass, right? Whereas you know, a political leader in the middle, in the middle of leading, uh, Max Weber had mentioned this in his politics of vocation, it's very difficult not to get your hands dirty. So it's, it's hard to take one moral line because there's so many trade-offs. And so he could exercise that moral authority when he called on Satyagraha. So Jankai Shak and his wife, Song Mei Ling had visited Gandhi in 1943, hoping to persuade Gandhi to actively join the war. But Gandhi chose not to because he didn't want to be aiding Britain in the fight against Japan. And he could do this, he could take this position because he was removed from politics and he was not encumbered by day-to-day decisions. Or by unfavorable outcomes. And he made this decision even though he had a high regard for Zhang and for Zhang's cause. So, the other thing about being outside of power is that he could be at liberty to suspend day to day activities, right? So, he was able to organize a salt march to the sea. So, these weeks, you know, he could suspend whatever activities he, he was doing to lead his people. And so, because Gandhi could be above the fray of politics, he had an easier time uh, ensuring a more coherent nar- narrative with his use of satyagraha, graha and then uh, ensure a more favorable legacy.
0: I'm curious to know if uh, Chiang shek ever reflected uh, on the humiliation of defeat during the Civil War of China in the late uh, 1940s, when later Zhang led Taiwan. What lessons did Zhang learn from his mainland years to govern Taiwan? Did Zhang ever take Taiwan as his eventual? home rather than a sojourner's place. Yes,
1: indeed, Zhang was obsessed about his defeat (laughs) during the Civil War. You know, as a result, he put his life and many of the mainlanders' lives on hold as he sought to regain the mainland. But ironically, in his bid to retake the mainland, he finally was able to implement Uh, Gojen's plan of rebuilding the country. So at this point, he's not battling warlords. There's not an immediate external threat. And so at this time, he's paying attention to education, right, of which my father was a beneficiary. He's paying attention to agricultural reforms, which he didn't have time on the mainland and in building a strong military. You know, it is true that when he and Madame Chiang Kai-shek landed in Taiwan, they really thought they had landed in some backwards land with a lot of bananas. <laughs> I don't know if Zhang finally embraced Taiwan as his eventual home, but I do know that many of the soldiers that he brought to Taiwan did so. Some soldiers who had to leave families on the mainland started new families in Taiwan, uh, often marrying Taiwanese women 20 years their junior.
0: Interesting. One final comment on your book's images, particularly those color illustrations at a user friendly price. How did you come up with this idea, Grace?
1: Oh, well, it wasn't my idea. According to my editor, Bob Graham, who has been wonderful to work with, The press moved to digital printing a couple of years ago. And so this makes the extra cost of printing in color almost negligible, right? Which makes me think maybe we should have all our pictures now in color. But these beautiful colored maps almost didn't make it into the book. Uh, As I was finalizing the book, I thought a map might be useful to show the route of the Northern Expedition. And I considered using a simple map from another book. And I asked Bob Graham about this, and he said that cartographers can work with authors to create maps from scratch. Uh, This was really exciting. And so this led to my collaboration with the cartographer, Scott Walker, to customize and build the maps in this book. And I thought he did a great job these maps are exquisite. And I think they really help readers visualize the story that I'm trying to tell. And the fact that they're in color just makes it even more visually appealing.
0: Indeed, I think those color illustrations, including the maps, make a huge difference. Grace, we've taken up a lot of your time. I'd like to ask you one final question What are you working on now? Oh, well, in the course of researching Zhang Kai-shek, I
1: would often come across this character who seemed to be the voice of reason. And Zhang himself appeared to hold him in high esteem. That character is Zhou Enlai. I've thus turned my attention to him. Specifically, the question I am asking is, how did Zhou weigh his ability to modify Mao Zedong's excesses, especially during the Cultural Revolution, against his moral culpability of participating and perhaps supporting Mao's excesses. I also plan to team up with a colleague to compare how subordinates deal with megalomaniac leaders. In my case, I will look at Deng Xiaoping, Liu Xiaoqi, Lin Biao, and of course Zhou Enlai in relation to Mao. And Peter Harris at Colorado State will do something similar with regard to various subordinates of Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also pivoting to a new area of study um, on gender, labor and the family, which was motivated by my own experience of trying to establish my career while also raising a family. I ran into several life balance and professional issues that You know, research has shown our experience by working mothers in most advanced capitalist societies. I also knew that my experiences as a working mother uh, in a liberal democratic society couldn't really be faithfully depicted without comparison to mothers in other democratic cultures. And so I have picked Taiwan, Spain, uh, and the US examples of Uh, a Confucian social and liberal democratic democracies. And I plan to examine what impact these particular uh, ideologies and cultural values of a society have on policies and attitudes about care, work, and the family. And ultimately, I'm really interested in learning about these dynamics from the stories of individual women in these three countries.
0: This is fascinating, Grace. I think um, the topics you're working on, particularly the latter one, is uh, what uh, all of us care about. So I hope um, you will carry it out. And I look forward uh, to reading more of your work. Thank you so much, Grace. Have a good day.
1: Thank you so much, Dong. Thank you for your questions and this opportunity to discuss this book. I enjoyed our conversation. Goodbye.
0: Yeah, bye.